So I could say a lot of things about Brother Hamilton, but so Lisa and I had been nine years trying to have a child, and we, she had miscarriage, we had a stillborn baby, and it just wasn't working out for us at all. And so uh, we went to Brother Hamilton, Lisa and I did, one night after a meeting on a Wednesday night. It was the three of us held hands at the pulpit, and it was just kind of one of those times when you knew God was in it, just one of those moments. I, I just, I don't know, it was like Eli praying for Hannah to have that baby. And she became pregnant like a month or two after that prayer. And so when Thomas was born, I made a phone call to Brother Hamilton, and he was over to my house before I had a chance to hang up the phone. He was that excited. I mean, he really, and you know why? Because he had to bury my daughter a few years before that. Just me and him were out there, and he broke down crying. And uh, so I think it meant a lot to him, like it did to us. So uh, he prayed over him that God would save him and use him and make his own all his days. And I'm just saying, we had a lot of names picked out, and I usually, I'm not that picky on that stuff, just whatever my wife decides. But I told her, I said, we're, we're naming him Thomas after the pastor. So I could say other things about Brother Hamilton. But the other thing is he was very particular about having his doctrine correct. Amen. And that is a big deal. And we're going to talk about that today. So since we've only had one pastor, that means we've only known one style of leadership, one personality that has been guiding us this entire time. So everyone, they'll acknowledge with their heads, we all will, that yeah, we get a new pastor in there, a new leader, he's going to be different than the old one. But the thing is, the reality is we all like to know what to expect. And with a new leadership, with me standing up here, there has to be a certain amount of uncertainty in some people's minds. And I'm saying, I understand that. Well, let me just put some people at rest by saying I have no plans on changing the way things are currently operating right now. I don't have any big chance. I'm going to stand up here and make some big changes. So we all have opinions, I know, on how they'd like to see things done. Build a building, get a building, uh, rent a building, rehab a building, more preaching on love, more preaching on missions, theology, or whatever. <laughs> and I understand that as pastor, I will probably make decisions that everyone will not like or agree with. But let me just say this. <laughs> you may not agree with decisions I make, but just please understand this, that as I stand here before the Lord, my purpose will always be to do what is right first and foremost by the Lord Jesus Christ and to bring glory to him through this church and make decisions that are for the welfare of the body as a whole. And for that and I desperately, and I mean desperately, ask for your prayers. I really do. And so you may be sitting there asking yourself, well, what's, what are the qualifications of a pastor? What makes someone qualified to be a pastor? So I'd like to just look at two places. If you have your Bibles, if you just turn to 1 Timothy 3, and it's laid out here. Paul lays out the qualifications for a, a pastor here in 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. And he writes, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, 
one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And if you'll turn back a few books to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. You know, here's the thing. That's on me, but that is also, isn't that required of everyone? But it's just more so, he's saying, that is more so a requirement of a pastor. He, sh he should be above in, in those areas. So that doesn't mean the pastor necessarily has to be perfect, and I'm telling you that as the pastor. But if you notice, most of those character characteristics that he's listing there in those verses. So his character has got to be above reproach in a community. It can't be somebody that's constantly getting in fights with people, quarreling. You know, your, your kids are totally disorderly. So there are requirements there. I'd also like to just give a brief testimony of how I got to be where I'm standing right today. So I, I kind of hesitate to do this because I wasn't <laughs> really wanting to stand up here and talk about myself, but I thought, well, there's a lot of people that maybe don't know how I'm here, it's like, why is he all of a sudden standing up here named the pastor and don't know my background or especially some of the younger kids that are just growing up? So let me just briefly, if I could, just give a, a testimony of how uh, my place in public ministry began. So in 1996, we were down in, in vacation in Florida. And I just, all I can say is this, that I'm on vacation down in Florida, wanting to enjoy the pool, the beach, the sand, whatever. And it's like God just was really speaking to me directly in my heart at that time. And what he was speaking to me about is you have been sitting in the assembly here for 11 years. And you've been hearing good teaching. Yeah, I had witnessed to some of my customers. I've been through trials, had testimony that way. But he's, it was like, how long are you going to do that for? Not that he was telling me I need to leave the church, but he's saying, isn't there a way that you can share this gospel with others? And it was just in my heart. And I'll have to say from the day I got saved, I'd always had a longing and a desire to be doing evangelistic type things with other people. So I always wanted to do that. I wanted to do campus outreaches, and I had no clue how to begin. Because for me to just walk up to a stranger and say, you know, do you know Jesus? Do you know that he loves you and will give you a new life? It just wasn't going to work for me because I wouldn't have listened to that. And so I didn't know what to do, and through God's providence, without getting into all the details, I was able to meet with a person that had done street and campus ministry for years. He came down, took me and Andy Woodward out, and uh, basically taught me in a way and took me up with some literature and tapes 
on how to, how to do street evangelism. So I began doing that then. Doing street evangelism, we'd go up to Bardstown Road on Saturday night with the counterculture kids, and it wasn't easy because I'm, I'm a relatively shy person, and to walk up to people, when I went out with Andy and this friend, they would be like, they have conversations with people, everything's going away, and with me, people would just walk away. I'd be like, man. But I thought, I'm just here to be obedient to the Lord. And so pretty soon, I just prayed for his presence to be with me, and things seemed to work. So we did those outreaches out there on Bardstown Road and did Thunder Over Louisville every spring. And then about a year later, Brother Hamilton was teaching one day, and he mentioned that he knew somebody up in Indiana that had done prison outreach at the Kentucky State Reformatory. So I came up to him, and I got his name, and I contacted the man. And he actually had stopped, but he says, okay, I'll go back in with you to get you started. So he graciously went in with me for two or three or four times. And then he told me, he says, my wife doesn't want me being in prison on Sunday's afternoon. She wants me home. So he said, it's all yours. So that's when I began just going from cell to cell. I did this for nine years. Paul Logson joined me in it, and we'd just go every Sunday for two to three hours, pretty much every Sunday, two to three hours going cell to cell, witnessing, praying, sharing the gospel with prisoners that needed help, sharing with them about healing, deliverance, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, basically bringing hope into men that had no hope. And then it was about that same time in my life that Brother Hamilton came up to me and asked me if I would preach uh, on a Sunday morning here in Shelbyville. And I mean, I about fell off my chair. Because at that time, there were, he was preaching, Brother Lanham was the main substitute, and Andy Woodward had been teaching here. I mean, I had never talked to him about preaching here, never, never came up. But what he didn't know and what I knew was about a week before that, I'd spent a lot of time reading books, reading theology, preparing to preach and all that, and it just seemed like nothing was really opening up. And I got before the Lord, and I said, look, if this isn't for me to preach, then just let me know, and I will expand my business so that I can have money to send to missionaries. And that was, that was my prayer to the Lord, and that's what I was planning on doing. And a week after that is when he comes, came up and asked me to preach here out of the blue. I mean, so I just took that as an answer from the Lord as far as preaching went. And so I preached once or twice a year here for years. And then in about the year 2000, I had a desire to do overseas missionary work. And what I wanted to do was to evangelize an unevangelized people group, people that had never heard the gospel, and begin a church there. That was in my heart to do. And I began to check out different organizations online that sent people out to do that. And the ones I was interested in, they required a BA, a, a college degree, to be able to do that. So Lisa had been giving me literature for a while about going to Southern Seminary and, and for years. And I just had been like, I just filed it away somewhere. I just wasn't really interested. I had the opinion of seminaries like a lot of us had that it's just, you know, they're going to talk you out of your faith. But at that point, I, I thought, well, I need to get a college degree, and I didn't want to just go to a secular college to do. So I looked into Southern Seminary, and I realized then, well, they weren't what they used to be. They weren't liberal, and now they're very conservative evangelical. So I looked into that, and I went on and enrolled in their college. It's called Boyce College, and started going to Southern Seminary to get a degree in theology at that time with the goal of being a missionary. So we're still doing that segregation thing in prison every week. And about my second year in Southern, 
The prison authorities called me and about a dozen other guys in, and they said, we're cutting you all off. You're, you're not going in that segregation unit anymore because they thought it was a security risk. And so I thought my prison days were over, that I wasn't going to be able to go in there anymore, except God had providentially worked out another plan. So I normally wouldn't eat lunch at the seminary, and this one day I took lunch at an odd hour. I went to a cafeteria I never go to, and there was about three people in that cafeteria, and one of them was the new chaplain at the prison. Never seen him there since or before. Hey, how you doing? Well, what's up with you? And I said, well, you know, they kicked us out of segregation. Yeah, I heard about that. And he said, so in the course of the conversation, I told him my desire was to teach. He's like, teach? He says, we really need teachers in the prison chapel. I had tried to get in that prison chapel for years, and it just wouldn't work to the point I got mad at one of the other chaplains that he wasn't letting me in. But it wasn't my time to get in there yet. So I met that chaplain, and he said, we need teachers desperately. And he said, just call me up, and we'll make a date and work things out, which is what happened. So to make a long story short, so for about five and a half years now, Jeff and I had been going into every Tuesday night. We alternate weeks preaching at the prison. And then on the first Sunday of the month and the fifth Sunday of the month, which is where I should be right now, technically, but I called him up, I would go in there and hold chapel services in the prison. So after I received my college degree, Lisa and I talked. So I had my BA, and we both decided, after praying, I decided to go on and pursue my Master of Divinity at Southern. And so through the prison, chapel services, and just some other things that worked in my life, I started changing my whole idea of the overseas missionary work, and I was more open in my mind to pastoring or doing something here in the United States. So I was willing to go... In my heart, I, all the time, people, you know, you're 55 and you're in the seminary. You ought to have an idea where it is you want to go and what you want to do. And they'd ask me, and I'd just say, honestly, I don't know. I, I, right now, i got my hands full with doing school full-time, working full-time, and, and preaching at the prison. And I thought, when I get done with this, I mean, it wasn't that I didn't care, but I'll really seek the Lord over what, what direction he wants me to head. And I had several different ideas. But I was willing to go wherever God led me and through whatever doors would open. And one time I asked Brother Hamilton, not that long before he died, maybe a year, if he would have any problem with me leaving the church if a ministry opened somewhere else for me. And those of you that know how he is, you know, he's like, would to God that he did more of that. And that was his answer to me. No, he didn't have a problem with it. That was his answer. So, you know, I just graduated this past spring from Southern and was planning on, I wanted to have some talks with him. I wanted to find out some of his experiences, what he could share with me, because I'd always been too busy. I just didn't have time to have those two or three hour talks. And I thought, well, now that I'm done with seminary, I can talk. and he passes away. So I never considered at the time that the door would open here. And for one thing, he seemed in perfectly fine health. And I figured he's got at least five or 10 years left in the tank. So I didn't know what the Lord had for me. So let me tell you why I'm standing here now going through all that. So I believe the Lord has opened the door for me to become pastor of Shelbyville Christian Assembly. And I can tell you I've prayed much about it. I've fasted. And I have a peace that it is his will. I could say it's not a position that I sought. It's not a position that I sought. But I believe in my heart 
that this is a position he has led me to today. And I have a piece about that. And I told Lisa for years, this was in my heart that I told her for years, my goal was to teach and preach and lead a people that are hungry for truth and desire to experience the presence of the living God. And I believe that you are that people. I really do. There's one thing I can testify to. I was talking to Paul before I came out here. So we go in and we preach in prison, and there's times I have more freedom and more anointing than others. And the reason that is is because these guys are bringing spirits into that meeting. They're bringing in people that are reluctant to be there. They're in there for the wrong reason, and it hinders that anointing. But I can honestly say, so I'm your pastor. I'm not trying to win your favor in that sense. But any time that I've preached here, I'm not dealing with any of that resistance that I have there. So I'm, I've said it to you all, and it's the truth. You, are, you willingly are receiving the word of God. And I believe God will bless that. I really do. And I'm excited in that sense to where, you know, it would be one thing if you had people that are fighting and resisting what you want to teach. But I'm saying that is not the case here. And I believe we really have a good group of people that want to follow the Lord and see his presence manifest here. And I believe that as we more fully dedicate ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I really believe this. If we do that, that he will meet us here that will be like the book of Acts. Now, that sounds good this morning, but I'm saying I really believe that. And I'm saying we really need that. Don't we? When we got a lot of needs, we got people that need healing, people that need encouragement. We have ministries, when they go forth, they need to be going forth in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, when they sent forth missionaries, there were signs following to confirm the word they preached. And that should be our goal, what we want to see. And so what was it? I'm going to get into the message part of things. What was it that made the early church in the book of Acts a strong, vibrant, loving fellowship that had a missionary spirit. So I want us to just look at one, I'm going to preach from one verse and get started on it tonight, today, this morning. You turn to Acts verse, chapter 2, verse 42. Acts 2, 42. Actually, we'll read verse 41, but I'm mainly wanting to look at verse 42. Acts 2, 41 then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And what did those 3,000 souls do? Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And I believe those four things were the foundation of the early church. So that foundation, there are four pillars there, four legs of the table, however you want to look at it. And without those four pillars that we just read, the church will fall. It will fail. So it may function and move on, but it will be devoid or empty of God's presence. And I believe that what we just read there is the foundation that our church must have. And the thing is, with that foundation, we will be a light to the world and a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. But the key is what God has joined together, but not man put asunder. All four things there have to be there. And here, the other thing is, these four keys in verse 42, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers, 
The order that is given there, that's just not randomly picked out. There is a purpose to the order that is given there. Everything has to begin with the apostles' doctrine. That is the key. Because without the apostles' doctrine, we have no standard for what we are believing or no standard for our experience. And then we're open to all kinds of the crazy things you see happening in Christendom today, charismatic and non-charismatic. We have got to stick with the apostles' doctrine, the truth of this word. So it determines how that the other three pillars are established. The word defines them. So without doctrine or teaching, you know, we don't know who we should fellowship with, how to fellowship, and who should be excluded from our fellowship, do we? I'm just giving a brief summary there because that could be expanded a whole lot, but we wouldn't. And without doctrine... And we didn't understand the teaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's represented at the communion, the breaking of the bread. And we need to properly understand what is taking place there. That's huge. It really is. And without the apostles' doctrine, we don't understand how to pray without their teaching. We don't understand what hindrances are to prayer, what we can believe God for in prayer, Without the apostles' doctrine, and most churches don't have that, we don't even know the importance of praying in tongues because that's where that comes from. There's even more that could be said about prayer with the apostles' doctrine. And without the apostles' doctrine, we don't have a standard for the doctrine of God. We don't understand about the Trinity. We don't know whether Jesus is eternal or came and was created at his birth. Was the Lord Jesus Christ sinless or a sinner? We understand all of that by the apostles' doctrine. And you say, well, you know, all that theology stuff, it's just really not that important. As, as long as I know my friend Fred loves Jesus, that's all that matters. He's saved. Well, I'm saying depending on what his theology is about the Lord Jesus, he may or may not be saved. Do we know that? <laughs> because it says this in 2 John, it says this, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. And where do we learn about the doctrine of Christ from? The Word, the Apostles' Doctrine. That's what tells us what we need to believe. Because he says, if you've got somebody that is messed up on that and is falsely believing about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, you bid that person Godspeed, you are a partaker of his evil deeds. So I think we need to be clear on what that is, don't we? So there we're back to, are we, what God are we worshiping? Because there's a lot of people worshiping a Jesus that doesn't exist, just in name only. And so we want to worship the true God, right? Yes, we do. So the, the doctrine of the apostle tells us about sin. You read that in Romans 1. That's how we understand sin. We understand that the power of the Holy Spirit will give us deliverance. In Romans chapter 8, sanctification, we understand about our adoption, our union with Christ. And also, how else do we really understand about the devil, the nature of the devil and the nature of spiritual warfare? That our problems, we're not dealing with men with the problems we have, but we're dealing with demonic forces. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, right? 
So correct doctrine is important, and the, what I'm harping on this right now is one of the primary responsibilities of a pastor is to feed God's people correct doctrine and guard them against error. So you're in Acts 2. If you turn, turn over to Acts 20, beginning in verse 17, Acts 20, 17, and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So Paul is calling together all the el elders from Ephesus. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the laying and weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you, and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit into Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, except that the Holy Ghost is witnessing in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And isn't that what we need? We need all of the counsel of God. And he goes on here in verses 28. Listen to what he says. Take heed. He's talking to the elders. Therefore, unto yourselves. He's talking to the pastors. And to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. What are they to do? To feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Because Paul says, I know something. I'm certain of something. Verse 29, I know this, that after I leave, after my departing, shall grievous, the word can mean fierce and savage. They're not going to appear that way outwardly. Jesus told us that. They come in sheep's clothing. And Paul says that grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And he's saying that's from the outside. But look, he's, he's saying they will come up from the inside. Verse 30, also of your own selves shall men arise. And what do they do? Speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them. He says, I'm telling you, it's going to happen. He's not going to say it might happen. He says, I know something. He's telling them. Verse 20, 31, therefore, he says, because of that, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day. And Paul says, with tears, his heart was for the welfare of these people. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen? It really is. 
And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. So here's the thing. At this point right now, I'm sure that things were going great in Ephesus. They really were. They had strong teaching. The teaching was sound. The people were growing, and they had unity. It abounded. But do you know that in five years, around five years, what Paul said came to pass? The very thing he said came to pass. So if you turn back to 1 Timothy, we can see that. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. And Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, As I besought thee to abide still where? At Ephesus. When I went into Macedonia, and look what he has to tell him. He's saying, hey, you're there at Ephesus. He says, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He's saying, you need, you're in Ephesus. And I've already predicted this is what's happened. There are guys already there that have done what he said. They have risen up and they're teaching false doctrine to the people. He says, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith so do. Now he says, the end of what I'm commanding you to do is love from a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. So he is saying there that the teaching that is proper that is of the apostles' doctrine, it should be producing love of a pure heart and faith unfeigned. Pure faith. It should be giving you trust or faith in God. Love for one another, love for God, and trust or faith in God. And he's saying these other men, though, they have swerved away from that. That's what they've done. Verse 6, some have swerved and have turned aside into vain jangling. And he says, desiring to be teachers of the law. Because that's what, they didn't have a New Testament. They were teaching from the law, the Old Testament. That's how they instructed the people. And so these men are wanting to stand up and be teachers of the law. But he says, they don't even understand what they say, nor of whereof they affirm. So Paul tells Timothy, he says, I'm telling you, you command these men to stop teaching error. Because he says it leads to that word, it ministers questions, or the word could be, or disputes within the body. And when he says the same thing in Titus 3.9, he says false teaching causes contentions and quarrels. And I'm saying, I've seen that at prison. A group's comp came in there, the United Pentecostal group, they had the biggest meetings ever. People were flocking to their meetings. But they promote heresy in three different ways. They deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, they say you have to be baptized to be saved, and they say you have to speak in tongues to be saved. And so we're saying that false teaching produces contention and quarrels. That's what we have at prison, have had. People coming up to me and saying, can you explain what's, what's the right thing? I'm confused. I don't understand. we got people splitting over this church because of their error. That's what error does. It creates questions and confusion and contentions within a church. And so he's telling Timothy, you need to put a stop to that. But, you know, <laughs> here's the problem, or one problem, and it's the problem even at prison. So when you have false teachers, whether they're in Ephesus or they're on TV or they're writing books 
or they're getting movements started, you know what they don't do? They never act like they're not sure. They're generally charismatic people that are telling you, oh, the Lord has shown me this, and, and all their revelation is true. And that's what Paul is saying there in verse 7. He says, they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor of where they affirm. They're acting like, I'm telling you, this is the truth, and people fall for that. And so it's a pastor's responsibility to, hey, if they see the flock headed that way, you need to be aware of this. This video that's going around is not biblical, even though it's popular or whatever. This book, this teaching, this ministry, it may have some truth, but it's got stuff in there that is going to rob your faith. And that is a pastor's responsibility to let people know that. And he told Timothy, he says, you put a stop to that or it's going to be a problem for these people. So, you know, Paul's letters to Timothy are known as, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they're known as the pastoral epistles, giving advice to pastors. Because the main teaching that's coming to a flock is through the pastors. And Paul is concerned when he's writing Timothy about the problems he'd already predicted them that are there in Ephesus. And so that's why he ad addresses the false teachers and teachers teaching and teachers in chapter 1? And why is he laying out the qualifications for elders in chapter 3? Because they're having elders that are no longer qualified standing up as pastors. He's saying you all need to, to measure your elders by these qualifications. And if they don't measure up, you need to get rid of them. He's telling Timothy. What do we have in chapter 4? He warns about the doctrines of demons and seducing spirits. Well, how are those brought in? through men and through their teaching. Is that right? So he tells Timothy there, if you look in the end of chapter 4, we've heard this before, he says, so here's how important doctrine is. He says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. In other words, what Paul has taught him and he's believed and knows is right, he needs to continue in that for in doing this, you'll save yourself. It's important that even the teacher not get into error but also all them that hear thee. So let me ask you, why is there all this emphasis on correct doctrine? I'll tell you one reason why. Because there is only one place of hope for this dying, hell-bound world. There is one place and only one light that God has placed at the end of the long, dark tunnel of life. You know what that is? It's the church. It's us. And if that light, our light, is extinguished by air, the world walks in darkness. And we walk in darkness. Is that not right? And so the world, what? They will remain bound in chains of sin, won't they? Awaiting eternal punishment because there is only one thing we know that can set a person free. And what is that? Truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So if you're in 1 Timothy, look at this. Here is, I'm saying, the church. We are the source of truth to this world. There is no other source. God has given it to us, and we're the standard. We're their only hope, and they don't know that. They want to get rid of us, and they're trying to influence us and drag us down. But look what he says here, 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, 
to Timothy, Paul says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God. And look what it says in the last half of this verse, which is what? The church of the living God. And he goes on to say it is the pillar and ground of what? The church. We are the pillar and ground of the truth of the living God. It's nowhere else in this world. And we can't let that standard fall as a church. We here, think about that. Think what he's saying. We here are the church of a living God, not a dead God, not the dead God of churches that worship a dead God. We worship the living God who lives here in our midst and will manifest himself to us. He really will. And the only way, though, we could minister the life of that living God is as we remain the pillar and support of the truth. Because the world has got issues, big issues. Why is my marriage failing? Why does my son have this abnormal behavior? Oh, you know, we should be able to help someone out like that because of the teaching, the apostles' doctrine that we knew. It's demonic influences. And God can help us bring light to these people. They're wandering in darkness, confused about why their life is so upside down. But we are to be the, the living God, the house of the living God, the pillar of truth that can set them free. They should be able to look to us that way. You know, I'm afraid to die. Someone could say, I don't know what's on the other side. My life just seems so hopeless. Do we have answers? Would you know how to answer somebody like that from the word of God and give them an answer? So we're God's lighthouse to the world for these questions. And that's why doctrine is very important. It's important for our own spiritual welfare, but also as our mission. As we go forth and do mission work, we have to be presenting the truth and presenting it in a way that it brings conviction and true salvation. Repentance. And that comes by the spirit of the living God and truth presented in the right way. That's how, it's done. That's how it works. True repentance, truly changed lives. And so we are that city, as I said earlier, we are that city set on a hill, an outpost. The church on this earth is an outpost of the kingdom of God in heaven. We're God's outpost here, this light to the world. A little bit of heaven on earth. We can bring deliverance. That's the kingdom of God being manifested. Spirits cast out of people. Healings take place. That's the kingdom of God coming down on this earth. The fellowship that we should exhibit as a church is a testimony to the kingdom of God and what it's going to be like in the eternal state to this world. They should see that love that we have for one another. It should speak to them. I don't have that. I don't know that, but I want it. And I was going to save this for next time, but here it comes out now. You know, when, when Carrie died and all those people were at that funeral home, and I mean, the funeral home people, I, I used, me and Greg painted there for years, and they're talking to me. They're like, man, nobody's leaving here. I said, normally, you know, when the funeral's over, most people are just scattered. But, but these people are hanging around, talking and all that. And Charlie Clifton was standing right next to him. He goes, you don't understand. He said, these people are family. I'm like, yeah, it is. That's what it is. And he's like, they're just family. They love each other. They know each other. And see, that's a testimony to the world, isn't it? Our fellowship and how we get along. Pillar and ground of the truth. But to minister that pillar and truth... We have to do more than just hear it, don't we? If you go back to Acts 2, 42, it says this. Before it talks about the four pillars, it says, 
they continued steadfastly. So what does that mean? That means that is more to continue steadfastly. That is a continual day by day. They're partaking of the apostles' doctrine. They're meditating on it. It's becoming part of them. They're living it, and then they're able to share it. That's what it means to continue in the apostles' doctrine. It doesn't just mean to just come and hear good sermons and then go out, and that's the end. God's never designed it that way, has he? He really hasn't. So, moving on, the, uh, the pastor's responsibility as the under-shepherd of the Lord is to make sure, as I've said, that the church remains the pillar of truth, but also that the sheep are properly cared for spiritually, fed and cared for spiritually. So if you would just turn to, this is the last place we'll turn, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Well, should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, and ye clothe ye with wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The disease have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherd search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be meat for them. I'd say back in verse 4, I do not want Shelbyville Christian Assembly to ever be a place where the sick and the discouraged and the weak are not ministered to, whether by counsel from the Word or by prayer or by encouragement. I would say with reading that, we do not as a church, and I, as you're now your pastor, we do not want people leaving this church because their spiritual needs are not met. Wasn't that the problem there? The sheep are not finding what they need, and so they're wandering off, and nobody seems to care about them. But they need oversight still. They're sheep. They're not going to last wandering off. They're going to die, aren't they? We need to have our church be here, a place where people find ministry whether from the pastor through the word or from you all, that you're able to minister, that we don't have people leaving because they're on the fringe of the fellowship. Nobody seems to care about them. 
And it's like, well, what difference does it make? I'm just going to go off somewhere else or maybe nowhere. We don't want that to be the case here, do we? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I sure don't. So, you know, the people of Israel saw their physical and spiritual needs when the Lord met, when the Lord Jesus Christ walked on this earth. And I heard this in a message uh, at the seminary chapel service last year. This man said, and I thought this was pretty good. He said, you know, when Jesus was present in the house, you couldn't find any room to come in. And I really do believe that's true. I think if the Spirit of the Lord is really manifesting here in a place and ministry is taking place like it should, people will want to be here that have needs. God will send them here. That's the way it works. You know, we had, we've decreased the increase at prison as far as the number of men come. I really don't care because I think if, I, if I'm not a good preacher, I don't want them to come. That's, I mean, why should they have to listen to somebody that's not a good preacher? But I think if it's the Word of God, God will send who He wants there. And I just trust in that. The Mark 2, talking about that, that when Jesus, it says he came into Capernaum and it was reported abroad that he was in, really it's saying he was in his house. He had a house he stayed at there in Capernaum. That's interesting. But it said there were so many gathered to come here when they heard he was there that there was no more room left in that house. It said they couldn't even get in around the door. They're gathered to hear him do what? Their knees were being met. It said he preached the word to them. That's what it said he did. And you know what else happened? He healed them because that's when they tore the roof off and lowered that man down in there. They're getting their needs met because they know Jesus is in the house. And that's what we need to have here, right? The great shepherd, what was Jesus doing? The great shepherd was caring for his flock. And listen, he's still the same today, isn't he? He really is. My desire is to see him manifest his presence here to meet the needs of our people. And we have many currently right now. We, we need to see God move, not somewhere down the road, but now. Amen. Through his word, through his gifts manifesting through our body. And then, I mean, who's looking for numbers? But I'm saying, it's, I think the people will come. No one's trying to get numbers for numbers sake, right? That's crazy. We wouldn't want to do that. But I think that's our great shepherd's heart. And so we continue on already the last half because look, look at our shepherd's heart here, the Lord's heart. Ezekiel 34, we'll read down from 11 through 16. For thus saith the Lord God, behold, I, even I, this is God's heart, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people. I'll gather them from the countries. I will bring them to their own land. And I'll feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. And here's what the Lord says. What he wants for his people, his sheep, I will feed them in a good pasture. And upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord. And look at verse 16. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away. And I will bind up that which was broken, and strengthen that which was sick. 
but I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he says right there, he wants to seek the lost, restore the backslidden, heal the brokenhearted, strengthen the sick. But who is he going to do that through? Us, isn't he? And also through the pastors. So it falls on me first, I guess. But it falls on all of us, right? So let me just say that as your pastor, and I mean this sincerely, if you're struggling, if you need prayer, if you need help of any kind, you know, please feel free to come to me or call me or whatever you need to do. I'm more than glad to help out in that way. But I would also encourage all of us to look for ways to minister to each other. And you see somebody, you can just tell they're just, they got to be going through something. They just don't seem that happy. Just somehow seek a way to encourage them in some way or call them up or have them over, just whatever. Because we, we all tend to people are people. <laughs> Around enough different people in enough different churches, we all tend to run with our own little crowds and make, you know, mingle things up it's sometimes. So I want to uh, continue the rest of Acts 2.42 on Wednesday night. But then off the record, so I'm done preaching on that, all right? This is off the record. So I just really, as a church, I would just, I'm pleading, Paul pled, and I'm not above him, for your prayers. It, God would give me the wisdom and insight, both in his word and how to lead this church. I mean, I really need your prayers. I trust you'll do that. And also ask that you pray for the unity of the church because I'm saying the devil would like nothing more than to destroy that. Because he does that, there's just not going to be anything left. And he'll, he'll raise up a standard against any attempts by the enemy to destroy it. Because I was talking to Paul too before, listen, this, this is what I really believe. And it's pretty evident that we are coming in as a church and as a nation. We can see clearly that tough times are coming our way. It's really going to test our commitment to the Lord and to each other. It really is. But I, on the other hand, I mean, I, I really believe this in my heart, that God is going to pour out his spirit on this church Amen. and have us ready for what's coming. Because I mean, it's not going to make the what's coming any easier, but, but I believe by the Holy Spirit he can have us ready. We can be ministering to people. We can be enduring persecution. We don't really know what persecution is, do we? But well, I think we're going to find out pretty soon. And so we just need to be praying for the church, praying for each other, praying that God will strengthen us and teach us how to step out in faith and minister this word to each other and to the world. So speaking of the storm that's coming, I got a call last night from the Martins and Caleb down in Guatemala, I guess he was driving and uh, somebody pulled up and shot, shot several times into his truck and actually shot him in his leg, in his calf. So he's doing fine. We're going to pray for him. Uh, let me just read the email. His wife uh, sent a text to James. I'll just read part of it. So uh, got a, she got a call from Caleb. He is at the Waddell's house, and we'll be headed back here to the Capitol in the morning with our friend over and his wife Priscilla. The doctor said that the bullet fragmented some bone, but not much, and Caleb could walk on that leg and even go swimming tomorrow if he wanted to. Ha ha. I would have said wrestle a bear if it was me <laughs> swimming. And it said, uh, Caleb sounded tired, but really good, and said that the situation is only confirmed to him that the Lord has us here for a reason. Now that's good, because that means he's really got a heart to do missions. He's not going to get scared off by a bullet in his leg. There's a lot of people that'd be like, that's it. I thought I was going to come down here, nothing was going to happen. 
Well, listen, you go out in a missionary territory, whether it's the streets in Bardstown or down to South America, you better be willing to lose your life. You really, that's the only reason you should be out there witnessing is you're willing to lay down your life if it comes to that by being a witness or a martyr to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't only go if it's going to be safe. You don't find that in the New Testament. But anyways, I thought that was good. It only confirmed to him that the Lord has us here for a reason. We are both thankful the enemy sees us as a threat. May Christ be glorified in this situation and may he touch the lives of the men who caused this to happen, we both have forgiven them and pray they will come to know and believe in our Savior. I printed out and wanted to read that because I thought that is a good testimony. They're, they're handling that in a really good way. So we'll go before the Lord and we'll pray for Caleb. Father, we just uh, go come before you as a church in the name of Jesus on behalf of Caleb and Megan. And we just thank you, Lord, first of all, for the testimony that they're giving, that they're willing to trust you and stay in the field and do the work you've given them to do, and that they also willing to pray for those that shot at Caleb. And we also pray for them, Lord, and we just ask you'll just grant those people repentance and bring them to you to a saving knowledge of you. And we pray for Caleb's leg, and we just ask you, Lord, to keep him from having any ill effects, any infection, and it will just bring a complete recovery to his leg. And I just ask that you'll continue to bless him for his faithfulness and that your presence and your hand will rest on him and his wife, that you'll continue to look over them and protect them and keep them from harm. And I ask you'll give him wisdom in how to conduct his ministry down there. And I also, Lord, I ask that you'll give him boldness to boldly proclaim the gospel to those that need it. And I just thank you for your faithfulness to them and your faithfulness to us. And I just also, Lord, pray for... Our church here, I just ask, Lord, that you'll lead and guide us and continue to have your hand on us. And we do thank you, Lord, for all the blessings you've given us, the fellowship, the love of the truth that you put in our hearts and, and brought us all together here, Lord. And I just ask that you'll cause us to draw closer to you, to submit to your lordship, to clean up things in our lives that need cleaned up so that we can experience your presence and power here in our midst in a real way. And we will give you all the glory for that, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you all would stand up. You got to have a song, Scott. Your love, oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice flows like the ocean's tide. I will lift my voice to worship you, my King. I will find my strength in 
the shadow of your way Your love, oh Lord Reaches to the heavens Your faithfulness Stretches to the sky Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains And your justice flows like the ocean's tide And I will lift my voice to worship you, my King I will find my strength in the shadow of your way. I will lift my voice to worship you, my King. And I will find my strength in the shadow of your way. I will lift my voice to worship you, my King. And I will find my strength in the shadow of your way. Reaches to the heavens And your faithfulness Stretches to the sky Amen. All right. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your presence here with us now, and, and we just ask that you will continue to walk with us and speak to us throughout the day today, and just cause our fellowship to be pure and holy in your eyes, and, and we just thank you for that, and giving us this opportunity to meet here. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, well, everybody just greet somebody, tell them you're glad to see them, whatever you want to say, and you're free to go. Amen.